Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 16. To the ends of the earth. Wow. We're here. Back in the first paragraph of episode 1, I said that we would take Alexander to the edge of the known world. And we're here. The edge of the known world. India. In this episode, I'm going to introduce India, setting the scene for Alexander's campaign and cover the narrative of the other campaign. But before any of that, we have other matters to discuss. Since the last episode, I've had a very nice email from someone who I can only identify as listener C. C was jarred to hear me simplify the Macedonian-Persian conflict in Alexander's court to the sentence, The Greeks were, well, racist. While my oversimplification was meant to be humorous, I think the topic is worth delving into, and I'd like to clarify my position. So, were the Greeks racist? In my view, yes. Let me explain. The Greeks divided the world between the Hellenes and the Barbaros, the Greeks and those who talk like sheep, which is an incredibly demeaning term. The Greeks thought that being a Greek meant you were fundamentally better than being a barbarian. Greeks could and should control their emotions, while barbarians were prone to excess, as seen when Xerxes whips the Hellespont for destroying his bridge across it. Herodotus is effectively saying, Hey, look at those weird barbarians. In Book 2 of Herodotus, he examines Egypt and amuses himself, and the reader, by looking at how they do everything opposite to the Greeks. A quote from Book 2, Chapter 35. Almost all Egyptian customs and practices are the opposite of those everywhere else. For instance, women go out into the town square and retail goods, while men stay at home and do the weaving. And whereas everyone else weaves by pushing the weave upwards, the Egyptians push it downwards. Herodotus is again saying, Hey, look at those weird barbarians. It is a common theme of the Athenian comedy to have a foolish barbarian in there who is tricked by a Greek. In Aristophanes' Thesmophoria Zouai, he writes of Euripides freeing Menchalochus by distracting the Scythian guard with a scantily clad dancing girl. Stereotypes seem to be that those to the north were stupid brutes, those to the east were despotic, and those in the south, Egyptians included, were cowardly and crafty, whereas the Greeks were perfect. The purpose of telling you this was to give some context to the story of the murder of Clytus, and perhaps Clytus's motivation for not liking the Persian elephants of Alexander's court. To this, he asked me, were they valid criticisms? A very good question. I would say they were, but this is purely based on my worldview. In the modern Western world, you were taught that democracy equals good, Ruled by one person equals bad. So, while the Macedonian egalitarian monarchy is much more preferable to my own taste, that doesn't make it better than the much more autocratic Persian monarchy, 
So, while I may understand Clytus's concerns about what was happening to Alexander's court, his attitude would not have helped Alexander's integration programme. I spoke in episode 9 of how Alexander needed to act like he was divine, to appease his Egyptian and Persian subjects. This was true in other aspects. He needed to act like a Persian king if they were going to treat him like one. His Persian subjects would not be happy if Alexander acted like he was just a man. It would weaken his legitimacy, and, with weakened legitimacy, could revolts really be too far away? Alexander was ahead of his time in trying to fuse the Persian and Macedonian cultures to create one empire. Without this integration, his empire would fragment, which it did. I'd like to point out that I'm not defending the Persians and Alexander's new attitude, but perhaps it is better to let these things slide than to make an issue out of it. Looking back over those last paragraphs, I feel I may have even more confused the situation. So, I'll briefly and simply conclude. The Greeks and Macedonians can be called racist. The Persians may not have been perfect. The Persian idea of kingship conflicted with the Macedonian idea of kingship. The Greeks and Macedonians needed to move past this conflict if Alexander's empire was to survive. They wouldn't, and Alexander's empire wouldn't survive. Right. India. Shall we start off by stating what everyone and their mother knows about India? Courtesy of our dear friend Herodotus. I quote from Herodotus, Book 3, Chapter 106. India, for example, is the most easterly part of the inhabited world, as I remarked a short while ago, and it contains, in the first place, living creatures, both animals and birds, which are far larger than those found in any other countries, the only exception being that their horses are inferior to the breed in media, known as the Nessarian horses. And in the second place, there is also an unlimited quantity of gold there, which is either dug out of the ground, or washed down from the hills by rivers, or taken from the ants. There are also wild trees there, which produce a kind of wool, which is more attractive and of a better quality than sheep's wool, and which is used by the Indians for their clothing. I hope that all of you have noticed that this is not at all true. India was wet. There were heavy monsoons. It was not a rich land. There were huge rivers and huge armies. The natives were fierce fighters and had elephants. In short, India was no place a conquering army wanted to be. The opposite of what was said in the brochure. I think you can see where this is going. As stated in the last episode, Alexander was beginning to have trouble with his men, as there were several conspiracies against his life. You see, while Alexander wanted to conquer the world, to be the greatest individual the world had ever seen, your average grunts didn't see things that way. They had just been fighting to avenge Greece from the Persian Wars. The sacking of Athens. Hadn't that been done? Just why were they marching through snowdrifts in the Asian mountains, fighting tribesmen thousands of miles from home? There were two reasons. 
Alexander's charisma is the first. Alexander was inspiring. He led the charges in battle. The troops loved him. They may not have wanted to be there, but Alexander did, so they would fight for him. Way back, while Alexander was by the Caspian, with a small section of his army, he was worried that the troops wouldn't follow him. So while the force was separated, he spoke to the force that he was leading, telling them what would happen if they went home rather than fully destroying the Persian Empire, and that he felt he was being abandoned. He was trying to conquer the world for them, and they were really going to let him do it alone. No, they would fight for him. The second reason was India. There is only one real way I can help you understand what Alexander's soldiers were thinking. If your boss told you, I know you really don't want to do this piece of work, but if you do, you're going on the next space mission to Mars. To the Greeks, India was another world, a place of legends. To go there was definitely something to tell the grandkids, and everyone you knew back home, really. Of course you were going to go there. So imagine the soldiers' disappointment when India turned out to be nothing like the stories. Now with this disappointment in mind, imagine then being told to cross, in the Greeks' view, the biggest rivers on earth and go fight an army twenty times larger than the one that had almost destroyed you a few weeks back. There is no way you are crossing that river. But that's for another time. This week, we cover the march into India. So, where to kickstart the narrative? Considering I stopped following Arian at the end of Book 3, I guess the start of Book 5 is as good a place as any. So, it's the summer of 326 BC. Alexander has spent the previous winter securing his route into India, and is at the city of Nisa, on his route to the river Indus. Nisa was supposedly founded by Dionysus, after his conquest of India, before his return march to Greece. The citizens of Nisa stated this as a reason as to why Alexander should remain free. Their proof? Nisa was the only place in India that grew ivy. This was good enough for Alexander, the city would be free. Alexander then marched on from Nisa, reaching the river Indus. The Indus at almost 2,000 miles long, just over 3,000 kilometres, is the 22nd longest river in the world. But in the world of Alexander, it was the second longest. Only the Ganges surpassed it. Interestingly, the Ganges is in fact 300 miles shorter than the Indus. But it was 2,000 years ago. We can give the ancients some leeway. Alexander reached the Indus to find that Sophistian had already bridged the river with the ships and was presented with gifts from Taxiles, king of Taxila, the largest city between the Indus and the Hydaspes, the modern Jerem. Taxiles gave him 200 talents of silver, 3,000 oxen, over 10,000 sheep, 30 elephants, and 700 cavalry. Quite a nice present. After crossing the Indus, Alexander made for Taxila, and was well received by Taxiles, as you would expect given the present. Plutarch recounts that Taxiles said to Alexander, Why should we fight battles with one another? 
You have not come here to rob us of water, or of the necessities of life. And these are the only things for which sensible men are obliged to fight. As for other kinds of wealth and prosperity, so-called, if I possess more than you, I am ready to be generous towards you. If I have less, I shall not refuse any benefits you may offer. To this, Alexander said he would fight taxes to the last, but only in terms of services he offered. Oh, Alexander, you card you. He then offered Taxiles as much territory as he wanted. How nice. He then did the usual Alexander things, seeking representatives from the hill tribes, appointed a governor, and held sacrifices and games. He left those unfit for service at Taxila before advancing to the Hydaspes. This is good. But at the Hydaspes was an army waiting to face him. That's bad. This army was led by Porus, king of the Porovaeans. Their kingdom lay between the Hydaspes and the Aesines. Alexander had 34,000 infantry, 7,000 cavalry, while Porus had either 20,000 infantry, as stated by Plutarch, 30,000, stated by Arin, or 50,000, stated by Diodorus. I'm going to go, as I usually do, with Arin, and go with 30,000. He also had two to 4,000 cavalry, 1,000 chariots, and one or 200 elephants. If Alexander wanted to carry on his conquest, he would have to cross through and conquer the land of Porus, and Porus did not want this to happen. And so begins the last of our great battles, the Battle of the Hydaspes River. Well, when I say begins, what I really mean is the two armies stared at each other, and no battle happened. Why, I hear you ask because the Hydaspes River was between them. It was midsummer, and the water level in the river was at its highest. It would be a difficult river to cross, and after you've done such an arduous task, the enemy would strike. What Alexander needed was to be a bit sneaky. Alexander announced that he would wait for awesome before crossing, but at the same time he made preparations for crossing. If opportunity came, he had to be ready. He couldn't cross where Porus was waiting for him, so he had to find another spot. And he did. Seventeen miles upstream was an island in the middle of a river. That could be used for crossing. Alexander couldn't just march his army to the island and cross. He would be seen by Porus, who would follow him. So, Alexander marched up and down the river at night, making lots of noise and Porus followed. But Alexander did this every night, and as the days turned into weeks, the Indians grew acclimatised to the Macedonians doing this, and stopped paying too much attention. And on the selected nights, Alexander was able to move a considerable portion of his force to the crossing point without the Indians noticing. He did not take all his men. He left a reasonable portion of them behind, with Craterus as a feint. It was a stormy night, which helped Alexander greatly, as he couldn't be heard over the noises of the torrential rain and the thunder. Shortly before dawn, the weather improved, and Alexander made the crossing to the island. 
and once he had made it to the side of the island, he was spotted by the Indian patrols. There was enough time for Alexander to make it to the mainland, though. Which did take some time, as once he reached what he thought was the mainland, it turned out that it was just another island, and he had to make a third crossing. So, what was Porus to do? He could see the Macedonians opposite the river, but yet Alexander had crossed. Which of these was the main force, and which was a feint? He decided to send a force of 2,000 cavalry and 130 chariots upstream to see how large Alexander's force was, which was to be led by his son, also called Porus. This may make things confusing, but luckily for us, the force sent against Alexander was destroyed, and the younger Porus was killed. As upsetting as this may have been to Porus, the force had done its job. He knew Alexander's force was the main force, and so set up his army to face him. As Alexander marched towards Porus, the river was on his right. He adopted quite a standard formation, phalanx in the centre, with cavalry and light troops on both wings, protecting the flanks, himself on the right. While Porus lined up with his infantry in the centre, elephants lined up in front of the infantry, with cavalry on both wings. Although, aware that Alexander liked to leave the charge, focused their cavalry on their left. Battle was imminent. As the armies got closer and closer together, Alexander's mounted archers on the Macedonian left began to fire on the Indians. Seeing how disrupted they were, he moved most of the cavalry around from his, the right of his army to the left although he stayed on the right. The left was led by Coenus. Alexander used his phalanx to pin down the enemy elephants and infantry, while sending Coenus to face the Indian right wing. His superior cavalry numbers destroyed the Indian cavalry on the Indian right, so the Macedonian left could swing around the back of the Indian army. Aware of what was going on, the Indian right turned round to face the oncoming threat, but then Alexander charged, and the Indian left was hit by both sides at the same time. The Indian left was destroyed. Now Craterus could advance from across the river and hit the Indian infantry in the rear, along with the Macedonian cavalry. Porus was surrounded, Alexander had won. The Indians lost around 20,000, either killed or captured, while Diodorus puts Alexander's losses at 1,000. This was a high number for a victor. Alexander then sent Taxiles to Porus, asking Porus to surrender as Alexander wanted to spare his life. But Porus and Taxiles were enemies, so Porus tried attacking Taxiles with his elephant. Taxiles was okay, and other messengers were used. Eventually, Porus surrendered. Alexander made him a client king, and expanded Porus's territory. Now, some historians question whether Alexander really won this battle. Is giving territory away something a victor does? Why did Alexander have to negotiate with Porus? Why wasn't he captured? These are fair questions. Then again, in the past, we have seen that Alexander could offer clemency. Maybe this was just another example. 
I'm unsure on where to stand on this issue. It may have been a stalemate, or a victory. But what it is important to take away from this is that Alexander suffered considerable losses against a smaller Indian army. This would not be lost on his men. Remember, you can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. There you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Tumblr, and YouTube, on which you can find favourited an episode of Time Commanders, which covers the Battle of the River Hydaspes. This week's Amazon recommendation comes from listener C. Persian Fire, by Tom Holland. I have not read this book, but have read some of another of his works, Rubicon, and have seen it in many bookshops, and I do plan on buying it at some point. As you may have worked out, it looks at Persia, but more in relation to the Persian Wars than our story. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join us next time, when Alexander's men say enough is enough, and refuse to march any further.